Welcome to the Simpleton Podcast. My name's Clark Mass. I'm here from Kansas City, Missouri, and I'm with an old friend, uh, Garrett Johnson, who has a website called Brother Without Order. He has a blog. He's one of the OG original YouTube content creators. And are you still publishing on YouTube, Garrett? Yeah, I publish uh, one video a month. All right. But you used to be way more prolific than that. Is that right? Way more prolific, like sometimes three or four videos a day. So I've, I've stepped back from believing everything I think needs to be heard. And when did you first uh, come in contact with Simple House? Uh, when I started with my spiritual director in D.C., he is, uh, was the spiritual director for some of the members of uh, a Simple House. So um, I was trying to figure out what exactly I was being called to as far as I was very clear that I was being called to serve the church in some way. Um, and he was trying to help me figure that out. So he recommended that I stop over and speak to Ryan and Laura, which I did. And, and am I right in thinking that's over 10 years ago now? Yes, that is correct. Wow. Hey all Ben here, editor and producer of the Simpleton podcast. Before we get too far into this episode with Garrett Johnson, brother without order, I have just a couple quick notes. First, in this episode, there is a little bit of explicit content, um, a little bit of sexual content. It's not super descriptive, but I'd give it like a PG-13 rating in case you're listening with children or those who might be sensitive to that kind of material nearby. Just want to make you aware. And second, in this episode, Clark and Garrett talk a lot about courage. For context, courage is a Catholic apostolate, so like a group within the Catholic Church that is fully in line with the church. It's a great community. Uh, Garrett will tell you all about it. Um, but it counsels and supports men and women with same-sex attraction. That's the context you need to know. Hope you love this episode as much as I do. This is one of my favorites. All right. Now, the reason why we have you on the podcast is because of your work with an organization called Courage and your work with um, Brother Without Order. In order to get into that, I want to kind of like give people a sense of your story. Like, um, what your history is, how you came into the church. And then I want to kind of get all the way up to the present day. Okay. So what, what, how would you say before you became Catholic, where were you at in life? Well, I was born, uh, into my mother's was Catholic is Catholic. My father is, I would say now agnostic at the time. I would say he was more of an atheist. Um, so we went to church every Sunday on Christmas on Easter, but I don't really remember there being any real practice of a faith in my house. I don't ever remember seeing a Bible. My mother did remind me recently that evidently we used to all pray together sometimes, which I have absolutely zero memory of, which, um, probably is due to the way I lived my life during my twenties and thirties. But, um, so we, we did that. It didn't really have much meaning to me that I remember. Then uh, in middle school, I was sent to a Christian school. Uh, I believe it was a uh, evangelical school. I was pretty quickly told there that I was going to hell because I was Catholic and Catholics worship statues and all the other um, things that we sometimes hear from people that are of other Christian backgrounds. And I was there eight hours a day. So I, I got more of that than I got of Catholicism. Um, I was also being teased throughout my, um, basically it started in kindergarten all the way through school for being gay. Um, when I was first 
tease for being gay. I did not know what gay meant. I did not have any sexual attraction to anybody because I was only however you old or however old you are in um, like first grade kindergarten. That's the first time I remember someone calling me that. Um, and it was persistent for whatever reason. Uh, are you saying that people outside of you were labeling you as gay when you had no sense of your own sexuality whatsoever? Correct. And do you, what do you think? Were you an effeminate or more effeminate than an I average think boy? That or there what? were traits that people. So I mean, I I wasn't really good. Well, that's not true. At that time, I did enjoy sports. So it wasn't that I didn't enjoy sports, but I could play sports in my neighborhood with my friends and enjoy it. In school, it was much more competitive. I didn't do well in that kind of sporting environment. It wasn't the sport. It was the you're an idiot. If you drop the ball, what's wrong with you? And I just, those things, I was very sensitive, still am. Um, so things that a lot of other guys wouldn't react to, I took very personally and I just didn't like the feeling of being pressured and being, um, yelled at. And, and so I just pulled back from those things. And then the more I pulled back, the more that was then connected to sex, even though once again, I was not um, sexually attracted to anyone. I mean, I liked girls when I had the opportunity, you know, on field trips, we would have to hold hands with somebody. I would always make sure I was either sitting next to this girl named Keisha or this girl named Lynette, because I always wanted to be near them and hold their hand. Um, so I, I, I never wanted to hold Michael's hand. <laughs> you know, I never wanted to be close to a boy in the way I wanted to be close to a girl, but I kept getting told you don't like girls. You like boys. Well, that's interesting. When did this, when did you first sense you had same sex attraction? Do you feel like any of this stuff was causal in it or like what, how do you like diagnose yourself with that? And how did you start living when you mentioned your twenties and thirties? There were several incidents that were very hurtful to me with girls. One, I was attracted to this girl and one day I'm sitting in class and I was so shy, you know, and I couldn't really look at her and she's standing over here to the side. And the girl that was talking to her said, I think Garrett likes you. And she said, Garrett's gay. And I just was like, ah, oh, how does it make any sense? Why am I drawn to women and women keep saying these things? So I remember at that point in my head, kind of giving up. And just thinking, I don't understand this. I don't understand what's going on. Why does this keep happening? And then around the same time, I was exposed to pornography. Um, I think those two things together uh, play a large part in my same-sex attraction. Is this like um, pre-teen, teen? Uh, probably like 10 or 11. And is it... Uh... Same sex pornography or heterosexual? It was Play, Playboy first. And then a, a magazine called Club at the time, which was more graphic and had men and women in it. Um, but I think the magazine set my mind into the, or got it on the track of people are objects. People are things to be used. People are so. And then when I got the second magazine and men and women were in it, I think it was easy for me to jump from looking at the woman to looking at the man because it's just 
body parts. Now, obviously at that age, I was not consciously thinking that way, but looking back because I never had any attraction to boys because I never had any desire to be close to boys, but people kept telling me this is who you are. Then when I started looking at porn and I mixed in you're gay with people are just objects and something that courage, one of the ther- uh, the psychologists associated with courage teaches is that he says, what's exotic becomes erotic. So that whatever you feel you're most like is not eroticized and whatever you feel you're most different from does. So because I had was being told over and over, you're like a girl, you're gay, you're not like men, that there was something that happened during puberty where I got these things switched in my mind. And then um, you went through high school and right. what, what happened after high school and like what happened when you left the house and things? When I left high school, I started drinking almost immediately. I'd never had a drink or done any drugs before, but I started drinking fairly quickly and I went right into hard liquor. Um, and then shortly within a year or a year and a half of that started smoking weed. And we started going out to clubs and at first it was straight clubs. And then we started going to gay clubs. Um, and when I went to the gay clubs, I was just fascinated with the fact that there were men there that were accepting this identity that had been given to them. Like it was given to me. I assume they had been told this is who you are and they had accepted it where I had been trying not to be it not to be what people had told me I was. Um, and when I got in this environment that was so welcoming, I really believe that that made it easier for me to just stop fighting. So you hadn't had like a coming out moment or anything like that before then? No, no, okay. everything was hidden. Um, I did have one friend that kept saying, it wasn't really my friend. It was a guy I worked with who kept saying I was gay. Um, and something happened with him, not between us, but he took me somewhere where people cruised, um, were cruising for sex men for, with other men and, um, something happened there. And so I basically ended up being outed to him, but everything else was just with this core group of people that I was with. No one in my family knew nobody outside of this core group of people knew that I was moving more in that direction. So how long did this go on for? Um, after high school, the, that process of getting used to it, I would say went on for maybe three years, 17, probably by the time I was like 22 or 23 was when I was comfortable with it and was, I would say living it a gay life. And then how long did you live that lifestyle? I lived that lifestyle probably till I was 31, 32 um, so a, a decade. Yeah. Right. Where I was really, I mean, I got to the point where I'm like, my eyebrows were plucked. I wore makeup. I had long fingernails. I wore big hoops in my ears. I would say I was trying to be androgynous. I wanted to be a pretty boy. I didn't want to be a woman, but I didn't want to be what I perceived men were because I didn't see myself as being one. And what was the first thing that kind of like, started bringing you around or bringing you out of that lifestyle? Uh, to be, I'll try to be subtle with it, but clear, just sex. The more you get involved with having sexual contact with other men, 
the acts that go on between two men are not are not um they don't work the way they're supposed to work so they involve things that if you're already have the mindset that that something here may not be who I really am or what I should be doing. And then you try to engage in these acts and you realize like, well, this doesn't seem like I should be doing this or this. Um, I mean, they're very un, I don't know what other word to use. seems like you're saying unnatural. That's yes. Okay. Very unnatural acts. All right. So that was like a sense where you're like, something's not quite right. Yes. Right. And it seems to me like just kind of being around people who are living that lifestyle, it seems like not everyone in that lifestyle is necessarily sexually active. True. Right. Right. And a lot of people I knew that were sexually active, men at least, were not um, aroused by the sexual contact they had, but they would do it anyway, which was another thing that I knew that's that's a sign that something else is happening. In hindsight, obviously, I see it as you believe this is what you're supposed to do, so you just do it, even if it doesn't do anything for you. Wow. That's kind of crazy on the way you described your kind of childhood. It kind of is almost like there was this social whirlpool that you got sucked into. It's like they all were kind of like sending you these signals and you were kind of... um emotionally uh shy or vulnerable or what and it just seems like it kind of like they you kind of got put into the identity exactly wow yeah Do, do you find that i've never heard someone tell a story like that before do you find that is a common story either at courage or people still in the lifestyle that they say things like that when i was still living that way there were people that i would talk to that were living the life um, that would discuss it. We would discuss it between ourselves, but then if you were to ask us that we would not discuss it with you. So I don't know if it's still that way. If there are other people, I doubt that I'm the only one who knew anyone like that. Um, when gay marriage first came up, my best friend at the time, we both kept saying, this is not, this is not the way it's supposed to be, but he was still dating men and having sex with them at the time. But he, he knew that because we, he was raised in a Christian household as well. So he had the underpinnings of this is not the way God intended us to live, even though he wasn't able to live it or wasn't willing to live it and wasn't willing to sacrifice what he needed to sacrifice to be able to live it. He still knew like, no, I don't want anything to do with gay marriage. You know? Um, so I think that's not, uncommon. I think the problem is people are in their tribes now. And if you're in the gay tribe and you don't believe in that, you keep your mouth shut. So there's kind of an internal and external messaging there. Like there's like this idea that here's our public stance that you better conform to, but in, in a secure place, you might say something different to each other. Right. 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 And my other question is, it seems to me like with the gay marriage question that seems like I've known of multiple gay men who are about your age, who are kind of um, outspoken right now. I mean, everything from like Peter Thiel to um, Glenn Greenwald, uh, who seem to me to not be thinking of the gay lifestyle as a sin. They don't seem to be using that type perspective. But it seems to me at some level, they don't think it's the building block of society either. Right. You know, so it seems like they're, they might not be for, um, 
gay marriage as like a building block of society. They just don't want persecuted or something right? And I think <laughs> for, that, for living the lifestyle. Yes. And I think that's what's happened. I think something that was intended to be like, don't beat us up. Don't kill us. Don't right. force us to do something we don't want to do. Got twisted into you will accept us and you will call us what we want to be called. And you will let us do what we want in school and with your children and whatever right. else. And you cannot say anything. And the people that were just trying to get e treated better just got rolled up into it. Right. And I'm worried that the um, counter reaction to forcing everyone to salute the, uh, I'm I'm worried that there's going to be a, a a negative counter reaction to this that is as bad or worse than before, you know, like even a greater persecution, unfortunately. But do you have any thought of that or not? I don't know because I live in Washington D.C., which is very gay friendly. So I don't really experience um, people that have any negative view of anything that's going on, or at least that they discuss. Right. But I do think, I mean someone I know who deals with transgender stuff has told me that, you know, you're going to start having younger people sue doctors because they're going to realize that, you know, this was not, I shouldn't have been pushed in this direction. And today, while I was at mass, one of the thoughts that came into my head was I am the future. <laughs> you're looking at someone what someone is going to be like in the future, as far as someone who has been told this stuff and has tried to live it and has basically wasted or somewhat ruined part of their life, trying to force themselves into something that, um, that they didn't necessarily want or shouldn't have been encouraged to do. And those people could perceivably be part of the strong negative reaction, not just from the outside, but from people saying, why as adults, did you let me take this or do this to my body or live this way? Why didn't you tell me differently? Um, so yes, I think there will be, we tend to, you know, we swing way out one way and way out the other. Um, but I think people like me and other people in courage can be part of what helps balance that. Right. What about, um, I feel like a main point that people aren't going to want to hear any, don't want me to miss is, so you start realizing that this lifestyle is unnatural and is not satisfying at some level. What brought you to the Catholic church? Because I was raised Catholic, that was always there in the background. Then I was in the Christian school from the seventh grade to the 11th grade. So even though it wasn't Catholic, there was still Bible, you know, Jesus, I was baptized. I received communion. I was not confirmed, but I believe that he had a plan for me for early in my life. I mean, from obviously before I was created and that plan, he, he put a seed in me at that young age, knowing that all that stuff was going to happen. And that eventually I would start to wonder to myself, what is the point? My father was a great aid in teaching me at a young age to question everything. So he's the reason I think I probably noticed some of the things about the life that I was like, something's wrong here. Um, but I just, I was smoking weed. I was drinking alcohol. I was looking at porn every day. I was in my thirties, just playing video games, living in a basement. And I just started wondering why would God make me just for this? What is the point? Like, is this cannot be why I was created? So you had a sense there was a God that was not yes. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. I never stopped believing in God. I just didn't like him. And I never stopped believing. I mean, I tried to believe, you know, the things you hear were, Oh, the Bible's been tainted because it was, you know, changed by people over time and this and that. And so I tried to believe that, that maybe God didn't really care about this or that, or this or that, but I just wasn't able to convince myself of that with a little bit that I did know. Um, and so when I started to get to the bottom of, you know, being a pothead and just couldn't live that way anymore, I started, um, to force myself first to discipline myself, make my bed every day, brush my teeth. I hadn't been taking care of myself. Then I started adding like 10 minutes of prayer and 10 minutes to read the Bible. And I would set a timer and I would read and pray. And then I'd run right out and get high as soon as I finished. But I was mixing God in. I wasn't keeping him separate from my life anymore, which is what I think I had been doing in the past. Um, and once I started just letting him in that little bit, he, um, he started to do his thing. So just so people have a good picture of like how you're living then, like, what were you doing to support yourself? I'm a hairstylist. Hairstylist. Great. And, uh, do you have a, I kind of know you have a specialty in this, but what is your specialty? Yes. I just cut curly hair. That's all I do. Okay, which basically means African American hair. Oh no, anybody with curly hair. I have okay, all good. different kinds of clients. But yes, okay. loose wavy hair, very tight, coarse curly hair. And women's hair or women and men? Most I would say ninety five percent women. Okay, great. Have any of them I, I mean I, I need to get back and ask you about that period of your life, but have any of the women who you cut their hair kind of like come with you on this journey at all? Like I know hairdressers talk with people a lot, you know? Yes. And I've had some of my clients for 20 years. So they knew me when I had long fingernails and pink and green and blue hair and a ring in my nose to now. Have you found support amongst those clients? Mm, <laughs> I would not say. <laughs> I, would, I mean, I haven't had anyone really say anything negative. I've had um, people ask me very direct questions like, how can you be gay and be Catholic? And I tell them I'm not gay. And they find that very disturbing because they think that's denying who I am. And then I explain to them, it's not who I am. It's almost like when they first met you, these long-term clients, you were a very eccentric person. Yes. Eccentric. Yes. And now you're also a very eccentric person. Right. You're just kind of a different in a way that they don't prefer, <laughs> but in a way like 20 years ago, that was not as socially acceptable as it is today. Right. And today you're also even less socially acceptable the way yes. you're eccentric. It's right. like you've, I've ridden a wave of unacceptability, just transitioning from one form to another. Right. Um, okay. Well, what would a cat? So there's two kind of, um, stereotypes of Catholics, like, one would be that um, if they met you in this period of your life where you're getting high and living the lifestyle and playing a lot of video games, one stereotype is they would be like, um, I accept you. You're great. You know, God loves you and keep on keeping on. Right. right. And another stereotype would be that they judge you fairly severely. Right. Right. What was or what would have been the right witness for you at that moment? How could people have helped you? I think a combination of those two, 
I mean, at the time that I was changing, when I was getting off drugs and seeing things differently, my mother came back to the church. Um, and I don't think that was a coincidence that God brought her back first, because then she had an inroads with me because of my um, relationship with her that I, I would not have listened to other people say the things to me that she said to me. And she was very gentle. She never told me, I mean, she didn't really have a, a good understanding of the church's teaching on same-sex attraction, but she came to understand it and she came to lead me um, slowly and gently into understanding what the church taught. So it was a combination of accepting me the way I was at the time and also telling me the truth. Um, and that seems to be a very difficult mix for most people. They either, like you said, fall into one camp where nothing matters. You're fine the way you are. Just keep doing what you're doing, or you're going to burn in hell and stay away from me. But my mom loves me obviously. And so she was able to show me things in a way. And she didn't show me everything. I mean, she just led me to certain people that showed me things that she didn't know they would show me, like listening to Scott Hahn or listening to whoever. She would send me different homilies. Um, and then I would go and look that person up and then they'd end up saying something about same-sex attraction. I mean, one of the things that helped me most was just the idea that I'm not my feelings, that I'm not defined by my attractions, which was something I'd always felt. Um, so that idea that yes, you have the attraction, yes, you have the feelings, but that doesn't change who you are. That understanding makes someone able to love you and try to lead you to something better. Um, most of the Catholics that I encountered, I was fine. I didn't ever have anyone say, you know, the only people that were ever critical of me were people from my Christian school background. They never said I was going to hell, but they were they were very bothered or disturbed by the fact that I was living a gay life. Do you feel like the Catholics that you were interacting with were too accepting? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they did kind of err on that. Yes. But I also don't know. I can't say that at the time, if they hadn't been that way, would I have listened to them? Okay. So you're not sure. I'm they not were sure. Too accepting. Yeah. I mean, I am. I would like to think that I would have responded well to the truth in love. But, um, but I also know how, how aggressively um, sure I was of my own understanding of things. And so, I don't know that anyone could have talked me out of that. How long did this process go on until you would have called yourself a practicing Catholic? And also when, at what point in this process would you have become into um start affiliating with groups like courage or some other like ministry in the church directly dealing with same sex attraction. From the time I stopped smoking, I quit smoking 11 years ago. When I first quit smoking, I was not back in the Catholic church, but I was in the process of trying to figure things out. And my mother asked me at one point, you know, will you let me send you things about the church rather than you listening to people on YouTube, tell you what the church thinks. And I agreed to that. And one of the most helpful things to me was um, the journey home, that TV show on uh, EWTN, listening to people who I could tell believed what I used to believe that were obviously more educated than me in that area. I, I think God gave me a strong desire for the truth. 
And so hearing people be able to explain, I thought this, then I learned about this and this and this, and now I see it this way. And I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. Now the journey home is, um, Protestant pastors who convert. Is that what that show is? Well, it's not just, it's atheist. It's all sorts of different. That's the main focus. But it's not just conversion, right? Isn't it people who like had to leave a job or had to like really change their lifestyle dramatically due to the conversion? In some ways, yes. Because sometimes they have like pastors and people like that who had to completely give everything up. Right. um, To be able to become Catholic and lose their friends and lose their, you know, people turning their back on them because now they're part of this church. I feel like that's similar to your situation. You know, it's not like you were a pastor, but you're going to have to leave everything behind if you accept this truth. Yes. And that's what there was a point where I said something to my mother about the Bible. And she said, why don't you get a Bible? And I literally started crying. And she asked me why I was crying. And I said, because if I read it, I can't not live it. And I don't want to live it. She was like, okay, that's fine. And that's what a good example of her being like, she said what she needed to say, but then she just let it be. And then eventually I did start reading the Bible, but that when I was gay, I was gay. You know, when I was a pothead, I was a pothead. I smoked. I loved it. I would literally blow the weed smoke into my clothing. So when I went out, people could smell it. Whatever I, I, people have said to me, you just replaced drugs with Jesus. And my response is Jesus gave me zeal for him. That was misdirected. And he got the things that I was directing the zeal that was intended for him out of the way so that I was able to direct my zeal towards who it was intended for, which is him and his church. Now I have some memories of watching your YouTube channel. Did you video blog kind of this whole process you went through? Yes. Is it still up on YouTube? Yes. On my channel, there's a playlist about getting off weed. So that goes from when I was first considering quitting up till now. Is there also a playlist about kind of getting out of the homosexual lifestyle? There is. That's not as complete because I've, I've mixed, I haven't made necessarily specific videos about that the way I did about weed. So that is more just interspersed in general videos that I make, but there is a playlist that kind of starts at the beginning of that. At a certain point it trails off though. So this is a good time to mention that you have a website called brother without order. Right.com. And you have a blog on that website, which is that your main way of expressing yourself these days? At this point, yes. Writing is more than the video. And you also have some uh, recordings of talks from courage. Right. I'm curious, did you release those talks on your YouTube? I'm, I'm kind of curious because you and I have talked in the past about YouTube not being okay with all types of speech. Right. Right. And you're, you're someone who they might want to <laughs> cancel out, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, I've seen a dramatic change in the number of people that find my, I mean, I used to get subscribers all the time. And over the last few years, every month when they send out your little report, zero subscribers. So I don't know that they've, they haven't censored me. They haven't told me I can't do anything, but I definitely do not draw because even when I first 10 years ago, if you look at my videos, they would get four or 500 views, three or 400. Now they barely get to a hundred. So this is kind of the idea of shadow banning or basically they're using an algorithm to keep you from spreading. Right. Right. Without having to like just censor you. 
is kind of and the I've convenient. Never, I mean, I think part of what might make it a little harder to censor me is that I don't tell, I'm not really telling other people what to do. I'm telling people what I'm doing. And so it's not like I'm saying, you know, you should, or you shouldn't do that or this or that. It's me saying, this is the way this teaching affects me. This is the way I choose to live and the benefits and the struggles. And I think that makes it a little bit, a little bit harder for them to do anything. Yeah. How long were you in the Catholic church before you came in contact with, you know, I'm trying to get back to like when you came in contact with courage and meeting other people who'd kind of been on your walk? Uh, it was, it was right when I, right around the time, basically that I met you all at simple house. Uh, that was when I met my spiritual director. He wasn't my spiritual director at the time. Um, but I went to visit with him and I told him that I felt called to serve God in some way. And he asked me if I'd heard about courage and I had not He recommended at the time there was a courage conference that year in Maryland. Um, which is fairly close to where I live. And I didn't have any desire to go because at that point I really wasn't living a, a, a gay life anymore. I was still looking at pornography and doing everything that comes along with that, but I was not going to clubs. I was not living that way. Then by then I was much more of a, I would have described myself as a pothead and a gamer more than I would have described myself as being gay. So he told me about it. I didn't have anything to do with it. And then over time, as I started to come back to the church, I started recognizing that pornography and my faith were not compatible. Um, and because I was looking at gay pornography, then I decided to contact courage and started going to the meetings. Was that helpful? Um, it, it has been very helpful over time. In the beginning, it was very difficult for me because courage encourages accountability, friendship, and, um, chastity. And I, I didn't want to be friends with people. I didn't want to be accountable for anything I did. And I certainly didn't want to be chased. So I was just like, okay, well, this, I don't know how this is going to work, but the chaplain at the time said, if you're going to come, you have to agree to come to five meetings, which I agreed to. And I went and, um, I mean, one of the things that was easy about it for me is because I'd already been on YouTube for so long. I had no problem coming in and talking about falling into masturbation or watching porn or anything else. But the, the part after that, the actual connection with the people that was difficult for me because I just didn't trust men. Since then, have you come around on courage and you've accepted oh, yes. these things? Oh yes. yeah. Okay. Yes. And how often oh, can you give me a sense of this? So if, if we went to all the, say, major U.S. cities, like anybody who's got an NFL team, do all of these cities have a chapter of courage? At this point, I think most most large cities in the United States do. Most, not all. Um, it's still, it's large in that it's there are a lot of people in it spread out throughout the world. But, I mean, our one of the chapters that I'm part of in Arlington, Virginia, is considered to be a healthy chapter. And I would say at, at a large meeting is maybe 12 to 15 people. A small meeting could be two or three people. An average meeting is maybe eight. And is there anything about courage that's like, I want to ask two questions. One is like, how often do you meet? And then the other one is, is it kind of like a 12 step program, like an AA type thing, or is it very different? 
the meetings, we're very blessed in this area, in the D.C., Virginia, Maryland area, because we have a meeting in Baltimore, a meeting in Washington, and two meetings in Arlington. Um, the Arlington meetings, one of them is every week, and then Baltimore and Washington are on another day every week. Um, so it's very unusual to have an opportunity to go to two meetings a week in the same area. Um, most places, it ranges from one meeting, one meeting a week to one meeting a month. Um, it just depends on, I mean, if you're in a, a, a large city, but people are coming from all around it. I mean, some people I know drive for two hours, three hours to get to a meeting. Um, they can't do that every week. So then in those areas, sometimes the meetings are a little less frequent. It's also difficult to find uh, priests who have the time and are agree with the teachings of the church. Um, I think there are a lot of priests who believe what the world says, which is this is our identity. So they can see, some can see courage as being something that's encouraging us to deny who we are which is why courage when, when new chapters are starting, usually the, our executive director, uh, father Bochansky will go to that area and try to find a member to go with him to give their testimony so that the priests understand what courage is really about, that it's not about necessarily reparative therapy or trying to change people. It's about living a chaste life. I don't want to scandalize anyone, but just as a matter of fact, I think everyone has to know that there are some priests who struggle with same-sex attraction, right? Right. Have you found that some of the priests that help courage are people who also are struggling like this, or do they tend to just be heterosexual priests who have a heart for this type of ministry? I think that's the majority. I think there are priests, the priests that are struggling with it would be helped by the apostolate. I don't think they would be leading meetings necessarily. I mean, as far as I know, that's the way I've never been told that, but that would be what I would expect. Are priests the ones leading the meetings or yes. are you guys leading the meetings? I mean, I know that in some areas, because the priests cannot always be at the meetings, that there are sometimes lay people who lead them, but ideally it's the priests that lead the meetings. I know that there's a parallel group to Alcoholics Anonymous called like Sexaholics Anonymous, and they have mm -hmm. something called the white book instead of the blue book or what. Mm -hmm. Um, is this in any way a 12 step program at courage and does it have any affiliation or contact with sexaholics anonymous? There are 12 steps associated with it in the community, in the groups that I'm part of in this area. We do not, we do not focus on that. And the reason that I've been told the reason they do that is because everybody is not struggling with addiction. Um, so they don't want to turn this into something that you can only be here if this is what you're dealing with. So they have these steps if you need them, but it's not the focus of the meeting or the group. Um, and there is no direct affiliation with, uh, sexaholics anonymous, though they do encourage people who need those kinds of, um, meetings to go to them. Garrett, what is, when you get to speak at courage events, um, what's your main message, right? I also know you're working on a book, right? Like when you, yes. when you're writing your book, what is the, um, main message you're trying to get out that you feel like that we most need to hear or most don't understand? That what we hear impacts who we become. There's this idea that has come from where I'm not sure 
that we are what we are, you know, and that, that words and what we're told don't matter, which is strange because we don't believe that when it comes to black people or to women or to other groups, we make sure that we are careful with those groups, how we refer to them and how we, what we show them in relation to who they can be, because we know that can affect who they become and it can limit their understanding of who they can be. But for some reason with sexuality, we think we can just expose children to everything and anything, and they'll still turn out to be healthy, balanced people. And it's not true. And I believe that I was steered off the path that God had for me by people who in some cases were well-intentioned and in other cases were not onto a path that led me into dealing with something and living with something that I didn't want. And I thought I had no choice about. And that's what matters most to me is that I make sure that people know that what they say and do to children can affect them negatively. And that children need to know that, that your feelings do not determine who you are, that if you give children a firm understanding of the truth, as far as their sexual identity, that they're either a man or a woman, then when they feel something outside of that, they can compare themselves to what they know is true and then try to figure it out. But when you don't give them that base understanding of who they are, that you are a boy, you are a girl, then everything, your foundation is like fluid and you're just unstable and you wobble from thing to thing and you're constantly trying to figure things out. And it just completely, um, it can destroy your life. Thanks be to God that he preserved me. And I believe he preserved me for this reason. I mean, he preserved me out of his deep love for me, but he wants me and other people like me, I believe who know better to speak up and not just let this thing roll over and, and destroy people. Do you feel like, um, the ministry of the church and your personal ministry is to be available so that if someone comes to a courage meeting or someone expresses interest in Catholicism and they're struggling with same sex attraction that you're there, or do you actually, I mean, is your, are you still a hair stylist on DuPont circle? Yes. All right. Do you mention it to people? Do you like do like, I guess an evangelization of some way or just kind of like some way signal to people that they should, you know, that this Catholic path is available. It depends on the person. Like I had one, I had one client that, um, I just started, I felt like I should share with him how the relationship with my mother has changed from how she coddled me and basically treated me like a friend. Um, when I was younger. And then now that I'm older, we have a more proper relationship where she can be a grown mother to me and say certain things to me that need to be said. He was able to hear that, um, and say, you know, I've experienced that with my mother and that's something I would really like to try to work on. I, I have a sense that he probably experiences same sex attraction, but I would not have brought it up to him that way, but I'm still helping him deal with what may be one of the um, roots of his attraction without necessarily directly, directly addressing the, um, the attraction itself. I know there's a lot of mothers who listen to our podcast and hearing you say that might alarm them. Mm -hmm. Help, help us understand what you think is like a healthy mother disposition. And then the thing that you're pointing at that actually could be a root cause of this type of disorder. 
I mean, mothers, in my understanding, are supposed to nurture their children, but they're also supposed to. The image that I've had in my prayer recently, I have uh, an image of Mary here holding Jesus, and she's holding him very close to her, and she has his hand, her hand under his back, and she kind of has her mantle around him. Then I have another statue of St. Joseph, and he's kind of holding Jesus like this, where he's, he's holding him, but he's exposed. That's what I think is supposed to happen. I think that the mother is supposed to have that role with her child at a certain point where it's more protective and keeping the child safe. And then there's a point where it's supposed to transition into letting the child experience things, deal with things that are difficult, maybe things that are unpleasant, um, and not protecting the child in the way she would have when they were young. Not saying you just push them out there and let them get you know, hit by a bus. Um, but my mother always took me out of things that I was uncomfortable with. I was not made to just deal with it. And my father told her at a certain point that Garrett's going to have problems as he gets older. If you don't let him deal with it, if he says he's going to learn to play the piano and he decides he doesn't like it, he needs to finish it. You know, do you remember your dad saying that? Or is that something you heard later no, on when later on? Well, cause what happened is I went to my mother after a session in therapy and I said, I just have a general question for you. And she said, what? And I said, did you ever make me finish anything as a child? And she didn't say anything. And I said, hello. And she started crying. And I said, why are you crying? And she said what I just said. She said, your father used to tell me if I didn't stop taking you out of everything, you were going to have problems. And now here you are telling me exactly what he said. And I said, I'm not blaming you and I'm not mad at you, but I need to know that I'm not a bum that it's not that I just was born unable to deal with things. It's that I was not taught to, and that's fine. Now I have to fix that. So don't feel guilty. Guilty doesn't do you any good, but I, it helped that at least she acknowledged her mistake. And we all make mistakes. No one is saying that everything that happens the way we're raised makes us gay. I'm not saying that at least I'm very aware that my brother and I were raised in the same house by the same parents. And my brother has a wife and two children. I had certain sensitivities. There were certain things going on at school. There were certain things I was exposed to. All of that helps form you. What do you think about this kind of thing that if I was to place it in time was maybe 10, 12 years ago when there was like kind of this big push to say born that way. You know, it seemed like it was a song, it was memes, right. it was people posting on social media. Here's proof that I was born that way. Right. right. Which never came to be. There was no proof of that. Right. What it comes down to is people don't remember themselves being any different. And what I've said to people is if I'm eight months old and my arm is broken and it heals and for the rest of my life, my arm is bent in the wrong direction, it doesn't mean I was born that way. I just don't remember what made it been the wrong way. It's the same thing with us. There are all sorts of things that if you, if you're interested in reading about it and you want to go to the courage website or, um, truth and love website, it, there are things that from a psychological perspective, explain certain things that happen when we're very young that they think may play some role in this. They don't know for sure. Do you think a certain frac that there could be different things that cause, you know, the same sex attraction that a certain fraction of the population might be born that way? Well, I don't, I don't know. 
I mean, obviously you think it's improbable. I think it's improbable that God would have us born a certain way that would, but see, that's difficult because we, just because we have a, a draw to something that is sinful doesn't mean that God gave it to us. Um, right. And there could be genetic links to depression right. or all types of things right. that are hard things to deal with as a God loving person. Well, yeah. And I've told people, and this is not necessarily something that, um, people like to hear, but I mean, just from my own experience, if you, if you know, people with same sex attraction, if you know, people that, that like I did when I was in the gay life that think they're in the wrong body, that think they're supposed to be a man or woman. When you talk to these people, talk to my people, there's always lots of other problems, lots. So the idea that if you could just get rid of the same sex attraction, you would not have other problems. It's just not my experience with myself or with anyone else. It tends to not be the, the root. It tends to be a response to other problems. Oh, that's interesting. So like with yourself, there was kind of a drug addiction and mm-hmm. maybe a gaming addiction and the same sex attraction, right? right? But it's not like the drug, you don't think the drugs and the gaming became from the same sex attraction, that lifestyle. I don't know. I mean, one of my friends that I talked to about it pointed out that it seems that those may have been ways I was trying to cope with. I was using those to cope with living a life that I didn't really feel what I was. So this was the way these were things that I was using to kind of cope. Right. I feel like if I was to summarize this and correct me where I'm wrong. So the first thing I think that's kind of countercultural that's interesting is that you feel like a whole lot of people are developing same-sex attraction based on stuff they're going through in their childhood. Mm-hmm. And you also feel that it's not a root problem, it's kind of a symptom of other problems. Yes. Okay. I think it's- and you think that's the majority of what's going on here? Yes. From my experience, the people I've talked to, the people that I hung around when I was living that way, Yes. So those are both very countercultural claims yeah, in line with the Catholic teaching, though, uh, right. or consistent with Catholic teaching. Um, my next question would be, what about all this stuff that's got such a bad reputation, like conversion therapy, or you called it something else, like reparative therapy, reparative therapy. Yes. What, what do you think about all that? Like, what's your take on all? And does courage, what does courage have a stance on any of that? Courage does not encourage it or discourage it. It's not part of what courage courage is there to help us live chaste lives and to grow closer to Christ. And that's what they focus on. Therapy is reparative. (laughs) I don't know why there's a problem with the idea of reparative therapy because no one goes to therapy except because they feel there's something that needs to be repaired. Um, what has worked for me in therapy is not focusing on my same sex attraction, but focusing on my relationship with my father my relationship with my brother, my ability to have friendships with men, as those things have been repaired, my attraction to men has diminished. So I think if you as an adult want to go in and and work on your same-sex attraction, I think, great, more power to you. I think if you as a parent, your child comes to you and says, this is something that I feel, and you think that it's better, you think that your child should go and talk to a therapist about it. I think that's only your place as a parent to decide that and not the government's. Um, The idea that there are therapists that would tell you 
you know, we're going to lock you in a closet and, you know, these crazy things that you've heard about some reparative therapy, obviously that is wrong and hurtful and horrible. And I'm, no one in the Catholic church would endorse that, but to take the worst element of something and use that as a reason to dismiss it, I think is not, um, it's not helpful. There are people within courage that find the idea of reparative therapy very off-putting because they don't believe there's anything that needs to be fixed, which I don't agree with. I think we all have things that, that need to be worked on. Does, does courage not have a stance on that? Like you can go to courage with same sex attraction and not think there's something that needs to be fixed. I'm talking or maybe about something that couldn't be fixed. Well, right. Issue? But they're not going to tell you, you should go to reparative therapy. That's what right. I'm saying. That right, particular right, right, right. thing, they do encourage therapy with a Catholic therapist in conjunction with meetings. And so, yes, there is, there's not that you're fine the way you are necessarily, but it goes back to just be with me, come to me as you are. Don't come to courage because you think you have to get married you know, and have children. You come to care courage because you believe the teachings of the church and you want to live a chaste life. Just come to us with that. That's all you have to come with. You can be really, really deeply into your faith. You can be just coming into the church and just leaving the lifestyle. You don't have to be healed or repaired to come to therapy, to come to uh, courage. I also want to ask you, how you and other people are living healthily these days as Catholics. Like it's always seemed to me that you've striven to be kind of a monk of your own order, you know, like you're kind of like living monastically in a way. And this is kind of interesting. Are there a bunch of other members of courage who are doing what you're doing or are they got a totally different way of living a healthy life as Catholics or can you help us understand that? And then anything else you want to throw on about like um, the questions I don't even know to ask. Okay. I would say the majority of people encourage are living. I think there are more people encouraged to pray the rosary every day that are praying the liturgy, of the hours that are doing things like that, that attend daily mass. I think the people encourage take their faith very seriously. For the most part, we know that, that the Eucharist is Jesus. We genuflect. <laughs> so the things that you hear about that a lot of Catholics don't believe anymore or whatever, that I would say within courage is not a problem because to be willing to give up this part of your life when the culture around you, everyone is telling you it's fine to live this way, including some people within the church, for you to be willing to go against that, you have to be um, living your faith in a more full way. The way I live, I don't think the majority of people in courage are living that way or necessarily feel drawn to that. Um, I felt drawn to that as soon as I stopped smoking weed and started coming back to the church. And I, I went down all different paths of trying to, you know, discern if I was called to the priesthood or if I was called to live in actual, you know, uh, religious community and a, being a Franciscan or something like that. And, um, those didn't work out. And I just discerned over time that God, Jesus wants to be as close to me as I can, he can possibly be and me to be as close to him as I can be. And one of the verses in the liturgy of the hours that has always caught my attention is, um, I can't remember if it's, it's one of the prophets says, stand on the path and look to the ancient ways. 
And I always interpreted that to mean, look at what people did in the past, the people that were closest to me, as far as the saints that the church has elevated, that's the way to do your small part. I understand that it's Jesus that's going to transform me and heal me and do all these things. But my mortifications are my way of saying yes to the work he's doing in me and moving things out of the way so he can take up more space in my heart. That's why I live the way I do. And my housemate that I live with is another member of Courage. He's somewhat drawn in that direction, though we're, you know, I'm 50 because I'm a hairdresser. I have a lot of control over my schedule. So I'm able to stop and pray throughout the day. I'm able to do certain things that a lot of other people just can't do and work. So, um, I think God has put me in a special position because he wants this for me. So at least in like male spaces, the male barbershop is kind of a counseling place. Do you feel like you have that ministry as a hairdresser? Somewhat. I mean, I, because of my obvious, I dress this way when I go to work, I wear either brown or black. I have a big cross around my neck. I obviously have a white beard. So people, when they meet me, are aware that I'm religious. That sometimes, I think, maybe causes people not to ask me what I think, because that's always going to be where I'm coming from. You know, I'm not, I don't put my faith aside to answer a question or something. Um, but I am very comfortable with sharing my opinion. And my clients know that if you ask me what I think, I'm going to tell you. And that tends to be, if someone says, what do you think about this or that? I usually start off by saying, are you sure you want me to answer that? (laughs) And I would say 40% of the time that ends the conversation because they really don't (laughs) want to know what I think. But I think that God gave me this personality because, and put me in this, led me to work in this career, this, um, this kind of a job in this neighborhood in DC, which is a very gay neighborhood in a city that is very gay because he combined the job and the place with a bold personality. So I'm not uncomfortable with speaking up. So I think I have a ministry in that way. I think i more have a ministry to my coworkers because they, they see me every day. They see me go to the back and pray with the liturgy of the hours. They see me carrying a rosary around. So they see, and then I can still interact with them and joke with them and act like, you know, a relatively normal person. I mean, I don't joke about certain things. I don't get involved in certain kinds of conversations, but they see what it means to be Catholic and that I really do live what I believe. Um, So I think I have a ministry in that way to them. Um, What do you think about, this is a question that I know some people will want me to ask. Um, There's situations where, you know, a Catholic parent has a bunch of kids and one of them is is either said they have same-sex attraction or the parent starts to suspect that might be coming up, right? What advice do you give that parent? Well, I would tell them, first of all, there's courage and there's encourage. Encourage is for family members, friends, loved ones, people experiencing experiencing same-sex attraction. So I would say if they have that suspicion, the first thing I would encourage them to do is go to the website. When you go to the website, there's specific tabs, whether you're someone experiencing it, a loved one, clergy. So you click on the tab for people that are a loved one or a parent of someone. And they are very good because they've been doing this for 30 years, I believe, at guiding you in the best way to approach your child 
and to have some sort of impact without, you know, um, driving them away or making them pull away from you. I mean, I, everyone I know is different. You know, I have a friend, a very close friend who came back to the church in part because of father Martin, who obviously is encouraging people to accept this as their identity. Thankfully, my friend realized that was not the correct by path. The way, by the way, we're referring to James Martin, Jesuit, right. famous kind of political right. social commentator. Yeah. So his way worked for my housemate. I wanted to hear the truth. I didn't want anyone telling me you're fine the way you are, because I already knew inside that this was not working for me. This is not my identity. So Father Martin, for me, would have had the opposite effect. Um, So it's very difficult to say to a parent what you have to know your child. You have to know what's what what they can handle and what they can't. And it also depends on you having a relationship with them. I mean, if you've just become an observer in your child's life, and then all of a sudden you try to swoop in and and parent them if you haven't been, which is the case in some cases, that can be very difficult because they've already kind of separated from you. So you might need to start off not talking about that, but just going out and doing things together and rebuilding your connection with them before you try to start addressing those kind of issues. If you're very close with your kid, then you can be more direct with them, I would think. Um, but it's very important for parents to live their faith. That's, that seems to be one of the challenges. And so there's a lot of parents who don't want their kids to do certain things, but they don't have a strong faith themselves. So that's one of the most important things is to know your faith and to draw closer to Christ through the sacraments. And then by you living your faith, um, you can help your child in that way. You just have to be careful that you don't bash them over the head with the truth because it just it's does not work that's great i love that as a kind of good piece of life advice bashing over the head with the truth is not the best strategy no it feels really good sometimes <laughs> it does. for the basher but it, yeah well yes exactly right but yeah my mother asked me that once in reference to my youtube videos she said are you trying to change people's minds or are you just trying to smash them and i said i'm just trying to smash them <laughs> she said okay well then you're doing a good job but you're definitely not going to convince anyone to listen to you by the way you talk to people which i have taken her advice thankfully over the last four or five years well that's great well good to talk to you again garrett yes good to see you as well all right well that was the simpleton podcast i want to thank everybody for listening and you can find more about garrett and uh his thoughts at brotherwithoutorder.com all right god bless